1: Welcome to Continuous Plays Harry Potter series retrospective. We will be reviewing each of the Harry Potter films this fall up until the release of the first part of the series finale, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. These reviews will be spoiler filled, so if you haven't seen the movies, watch them before listening to our podcast continuous play podcast is not affiliated with heyday films 1492 pictures Duncan Henderson productions or Warner Brothers pictures in any discussion of these films the characters music or parties involved is done so for entertainment purposes only and no infringement is intended now Anna and Jay raise your wands and let's get to the podcast
0: welcome to continuous plays review of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone starring Daniel Radcliffe Rupert Grant, Emma Watson, Richard Harris, Robbie Coltrane, Maggie Smith, and Alan Rickman. Directed by Chris Columbus. This is of course, based on the popular series of novels by J.K. Rowling. It was released in 2001 and for on a budget of $125 million, made $974 million back in revenue. was a massive hit and is the beginning to a very successful series. I'm Jay. Nah, Anna. We're glad you've joined us here for our Harry Potter series, and we're doing something a little different here on this one with continuous play. We're doing a film series that is going to culminate in a release in theaters. We've never done a review of a film while it's in theaters, but we're going to do that with this series. The last of the Harry Potter films, at least the first part of it, releases in November of 2010. We'll catch that one, and then we'll pick up with it again in the summer of 2011. But before we get to that, we've got all of these in front of us. So let's talk a little bit about our approach with Harry Potter here. And and I'll say right now, I've read the first book and part of another one and it wasn't that I didn't like them. I just didn't have time to finish reading them at the time. And I read them way after the fact. I didn't even see this movie in the theaters when it came out. I wound up renting it on a whim and because I didn't know if I'd like it. And I wound up really enjoying it when I, the first time I watched it. So my connection to Harry Potter is almost solely through the movies. I had no connections to the books. What about you?
2: Well, mine is I, um, tend to do this a lot. I like, I won't watch Twilight because everybody's watching it, and I think I'm just cooler than that for some reason. Harry Potter was the same way 10 years ago, if you think back. The book, just like Twilight with the books, yep. and then the movies became such a phenomenon and has gone strong for 10 years, obviously. So my, what happened was my mom, actually, when she was teaching elementary school, They got to go to a field trip to see this movie. And she was like, oh, you've got to see it. And I I said, I don't know. It's "It's," And I don't have the attention span for a two and a half hour movie. She's like, no, trust me. It goes really fast. It was really good. And so we bought the DVD and I got hooked. And sadly to say, I haven't read this book nor the second book. And when we did the second movie, I'll explain why but I did start reading the books in the third one before the, I think I read the book before the third movie came out because it was, cause I saw the second one in the theater and I uh, started reading after
0: that. Well, And, and just so our listeners know, we're going to approach this like we do with everything else. We may reference the side material that we have some connection to, but we're going to look at this as a movie series, and as movies, and do they work as a series, and then individually, too. I, I, I'll tell you now, my reading in the first book, I remember reading it, like I said, way after the fact, after I'd seen the movie a few times, and I remember thinking to myself, well, I couldn't remove the images in my head of what I had seen in the movie to the book, and I can barely remember the stuff that's in the book that didn't make it in the film, because like you say, this movie is long. It's it's two and a half hours. It's over two and a half hours long. It's a it's a thick one, and the book's pretty pretty heavy too. The book came out in 1998, and then they started putting these films into production in 2000. So this is a series that. The written word of it did precede the, the films, but only by a few years, but it was really wildly popular and people took to it. And I think you made a good analogy. It's like what the, the Twilight films are today, though a different, different group of people. I want to ask this, Anna, and I don't want you to answer it now. I want you to answer it at the end when we're done talking about this thing. Is this a kids movie? That's my big question is, is this a kid's movie? But before we get into this, we've got to go through a detailed plot discussion. And we're going to try to go through everything here so that we can really focus on... Uh, characters and moments and stuff, and we don't feel like we got to walk through the plot. If you've seen Harry Potter, folks, you know how deep and thick these films can be. Uh, there's a lot going on, but we'll try to hit the, the biggest highlights for you. This is the story, the beginning story of Harry Potter, who is a seemingly ordinary boy who lives with uh, rather belligerent and negligent relatives, the Dursleys. And on his 11th birthday, he learns from a mysterious stranger, Rupert Haggard, who's played by Robbie Coltrane, that he is actually a wizard. He is the son of a witch and a wizard, a very powerful one. And he is famous for surviving an attack from the evil Lord Voldemort uh, when he was only a year old. And in that attack... Voldemort killed his parents, but his attack on Harry rebounded, leaving only a lightning bolt scar on Harry's forehead and rendering Voldemort powerless and bodiless, as it turns out. Hagrid tells him all of this and that he has been invited to attend Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, which his human relatives have done everything they can to keep him away from. The, Harry does go away with Hagrid. After buying his school supplies and a hidden wizardry street in London known as Diagon Alley, he boards a train headed to Hogwarts, and on this train, he meets his two closest friends, or who will become his two closest friends, a young boy from a large wizarding family, Ron Weasley, played by Rupert Grant, and then Hermione Granger, a witch born to non-magical parents, who, of course, is Emma Watson. They arrive at the school, and Harry and all the other first-year students are sorted into their different houses. This is the old boarding school model here. And Harry actually t- uh, convinces the Sorting Hat not to put him in a house known for the darker wizards, in which, which has been said he winds up in a house with Ron and Hermione. At Hogwarts, he begins to learn uh, wizardry, discovers a lot more about his past and his parents, um, he actually makes a sports team known as the Quidditch team. We'll get into that after he learns his father was a part of that team. And he and his two friends one night discover a three-headed dog guarding a door in, the, uh, in a restricted floor of the school. And they uh, learn through a little bit of deduction, a little bit of uh, trickery, that it is guarding something known as the Sorcerer's Stone. Or if you're in every other country except the United States and India, the Philosopher's Stone. It's an item that can grant its owner immortality. Harry concludes that his potions teacher, uh, Professor Snape, played by Alan Rickman, is trying to obtain the stone in order to return Voldemort to a human form and thus kill Harry. Uh, After learning from Hagrid that the dog will fall asleep if they play music, Harry, Ron, and Hermione decide to go get it and find the stone before Snape does. They face a series of difficult tasks, a deadly plant, a flying past hundreds of uh, flying keys, trying to find one to unlock a door, and a large, violent, life-size chess match. They get past the task, and Harry learns that it was not Snape who wanted the stone, but his defense against the dark arts teacher, Professor Quirrell. Quirrell removes his turban and reveals that Voldemort has been living literally on the back of his head. Voldemort tries to convince Harry to give him the stone, which he suddenly has in his pocket, and by promising to bring his uh, parents back from the dead, but of course Harry refuses. Quirrell tries to kill him, but Harry's touch burns him to death, and Quirrell crumbles into dust and dies. When Harry gets up, Voldemort's spirit forms and passes through him, knocking him unconscious before fleeing the scene. Harry wakes up in the school's hospital wing with Dumbledore at his side... Professor Dumbledore is the head of the school and is the the oldest and most powerful wizard there. He explains that the stone's been destroyed and that despite uh, Ron nearly being killed in the chess match, both he and uh, Hermione have survived. And the reason that Quirrell was burned by Harry's touch is because Harry's mother died saving him and her death gave Harry a magical, love-based protection against Voldemort. When, uh, When Harry and the students leave for the rest of the summer, the rest are going home, but Harry realizes that his home is really at Hogwarts. So that's the story of this first movie and really the first book, and and you know for set, as setup stories go, I, I'll praise this immediately out of the gate by saying, when when you're doing a series and you're going to do the big setup story, it's easy just to have a side plot, the B plot that you're having your characters go through so that you can get to know them, but that it's not really compelling. I I find the B plot of the Stone just as interesting as who all these people are.
2: Yes. I think this film has done a very good job of, it, it, and I hate to say this as we go on, because I feel since this is the first one, I will be saying this throughout the whole podcast in the future, you will see, but this film does a good job of not only setting up the characters, it sets the scene, it sets Hogwarts, Hogwarts kind of like it's Sex in the City, they say New York is a character, Hogwarts is kind of a character in this as yes. well. And it does a good job of not only setting up the characters and, and I think it kind of does an elementary job of setting up the characters. I mean, we realize that um, Hermione's the bookworm, Ron's the smart aleck and Harry's kind of the jock. And, you know, if this were like high school musical or something,
0: that's, <laughs> yeah. uh,
2: you know, that's the basic <laughs> breakdown of who they are. And it sets that, it sets that up. And, not you get more of a backstory. This movie is kind of the backstory. It does a good job of setting up the backstory, setting up the location, and setting up the characters, along with moving very quickly through this plot of the Philosopher's Stone.
0: Yeah, and and to be like I said, to be over two and a half hours long, there's a there's a lot of stuff going on in this film, but it never there's only a couple of well there's only a couple of times I ever felt like it it dragged just a tad, but they paid it off relatively quickly after I thought it was a lull. So again, it never really drags. It's just something that that moves very briskly through a lot of information. And I think you you made a good point there about Hogwarts being a character just like New York City is in Sex and the City. For our listeners who may also be listeners to the Art of Slaying podcast, the Buffy retrospective that, that Brian and I do, we talked a lot in season one about how Sunnydale is as much a character in the Buffy series as anything. And it's sort of the impetus for everything that goes on. And you have that same here with Hogwarts. I mean, the building has its own personality. It's haunted. Of course, it's got all kinds of moving staircases and stuff. And this is revealed through multiple shots and different characters talking about different things. And then you get to see it. And that's a, and we'll have to talk about the special effects once we get into this a bit. But uh, that's one of the things about this that makes it so neat is that the, the, place and the location is just as important as the people they don't waste any time either in putting you in this world is this idea that there are real people that live in the real world and there are magicians who live in the world too and real people can't handle the magician's world even though the magician's circle about the real world they tend to live in their own world where hogwarts is and all that is Somewhere that the rest of us can't see. And I did kind of like that. It's a neat little plot element.
2: Yeah, that's true. And um, I'll, I'll go, like I said, I don't want to say. You'll find out in the future. But it says it in the books. But then I can't remember why. It says it in one of the middle books, like the fourth or fifth, of why people can't, why the muggles, the non-magical people, can't see it. And how how they put spells and enchantments to protect it. Like, I think if we went to Hogwarts, we would only see, like, this field or this abandoned place no one would want to enter. And and it's really, you know, it's really this vibrant castle with Quidditch and wizards and witches and magic and stuff. So yeah. they do say that in one of the middle books, but I don't think they well, ever put that in the movies.
0: They, no, they, they never really did. But they, the one thing the first book does start out with it's not as much here it's a little different the first book starts from the perspective of the dursleys and noticing how their life changes when they bring harry into their their house to raise him after he's one years old and his, his parents are killed his mother's this is his aunt uh his aunt petunia and then her husband and their son that he lives with and they it, that's in there to show how the real world or real world people, non-magical people, can't understand and don't want to understand magic. It freaks them out. It scares them. They do that pretty well in the film, but they don't tell it from that point of view. It's always from Harry's point of view in this, in this film, which I thought was a smart move because it'd be hard to introduce these people and then all of a sudden switch on them. Because you can't blame them necessarily for feeling the way they do in the book. they're They're cruel, but they're not as awful as they are in the first of this film. I mean, they keep him locked under the stairs and it's...
2: Even in the very first scene when Dumbledore and McGonagall are dropping him off there and Professor McGonagall, who's played by Maggie Smith, is saying she's like i have been staking out these people and they are the worst possible people i have ever you know she basically says they're the worst possible people (laughs) i've ever met muggle or magical yeah she's like i just can't leave this poor little baby with them and dumbledore's like no it's for the best we have to do this this is his this is his family so i thought that was I thought that was neat. Flash to the sea where He lives under the stairs and his cousin in this basically a cupboard, which is what it called. I mean, I don't, I don't think you could, you could barely fit a cotton there. He has no toys. He has no books. He, the clothes he wears looks like they're either, they're hand me downs from his fat cousin and they're all cinched and worn. And he, I, you know, and his cousin comes down the stairs and he's, jumping on the stairs, kicking dust in Harry's face to wake him up. And and you can see her point.
0: Well, they're the most unfit parents for a yes. magical kid, but... That's Dumbledore's point. Is if we're gonna keep him away, because he says that too. He says this kid will be a legend among, you know, there won't be one child that doesn't know who he is and doesn't. There's no one that won't know his story. But to protect him from all that, he's got enough problems. Let's put him somewhere that will completely shield him from that, so that he can grow up on his own. And if and when the time is right, then we can come and get him. And I like that. That gives Harry a real neat character arc because he's not just. Well, it's, I'll tell you what it reminds me of. It's very much Luke Skywalker in Star Wars, you know, and we now know the complete story of that, unfortunately, because of George Lucas's idiocy. But he was taken to his family away from the world that he should have been in, which was the space war and all that stuff, and sort of grew up in the desert, you know, doing nothing until the time was right. And then someone came and got him. So that whole Obi-Wan Kenobi Luke thing is very much in play here with Dumbledore and Harry Potter. And I don't think that's by accident either. I've, I I've never read any of J.K. Rowling's thoughts on it. But, it, you know, that's part of popular culture. That's just something that permeates. And I immediately thought of that when I was watching this film again and I hear that conversation from Dumbledore. They're keeping this very special child in you know the most remote place they can come up with until he's ready to become a wizard or become a Jedi as it is for for Luke. So that's how I read it.
2: So you would say Dumbledore is Harry's Obi-Wan Kenobi.
0: Yeah, I would. would Dumbledore is to Harry what (laughs) Obi-Wan Kenobi is to Luke. Yes. Yes, I, I, I would. I would I just make Just want to
2: make sure I got that right.
0: Let's talk a little bit about Harry Potter, and I specifically, want to talk about Daniel Radcliffe here, who was cast to play Harry. He got cast in a really odd way.
2: Yes, before Harry Potter, he was in The Taylor of Panama with, I believe, Jamie Lee Curtis and Pierce Brosnan. And when he's working with Jamie Lee Curtis, I mean, she makes kind of this side comment like, "Oh, he really looks like Harry Potter." <laughs> you know, if you read the books, he really looks a lot like she describes Harry Potter. And so then what happened was one of the producers on this film knew Daniel Radcliffe's dad and went to see, I believe Daniel Radcliffe was in a play, and went to see him and just was mesmerized by how much he looked like Harry Potter. And that's how he got the role. J.K. Rowling was adamant that she wanted a British actor and wanted, the you know, all, especially all the principal people, to be British. And, so, and she got her wish, of course, because she always gets her wish.
0: I'll say this. you know, I didn't read the books beforehand, but having read it now, the way he is described in the book is exactly what Daniel Radcliffe is sort of made to look like and how he <laughs> looks. For a, a boy who's 11, he's really got a lot of screen presence. There's only a couple of times... You can tell he's having you know some trouble getting the lines through and stuff like that, and that's a credit not only to him, but to Chris Columbus as a director for getting a good performance out of a kid like that, because you'll hear me say later about one of the other ones that the performance isn't really there uh, for for me on another one of these, but I thought Radcliffe was great at this. It's like you called him the jock in like the Disney mode of, of films, and you're you're right. He kind of looks like the kid that would grow up to be a jock. You know, he's got a build that he looks athletic, and he, but he's also kind of quick on his feet, and he's smart enough to not be the class brain, but he's also not silly enough to be the class clown. You know, he's right, right. in the middle. So he's he's the popular one, but he's not the best, but he's so good you always want him around. And that's kind of Harry Potter's character, and Radcliffe plays him really well like that.
2: You, as I was looking back, I glimpses of the jock. And I think they do a good job in the book of establishing that by he's the youngest person in a century to be a seeker on a Quidditch team and stuff like that. And, but I think as an actor, he really owns it in like the third or fourth movie. He really starts to own it. And you really start to believe. But then if you go back in reality and look, even you might be a jock when you're 13 or 14 in seventh or eighth grade, but you're not gonna own it till you're in high school, 10th, 11th grade, right? and I think if they do a good job of doing of seeing that parallel to reality in this film.
0: Now you're correct, and he's he's an accomplished actor outside of this. He's mostly mm-hmm. known for this, but he's done some other things too, and even some stage work. And I think that's where his real passion is. We, you know, he may wind up being on stage more than he is in films in his later life, but we'll see. It's not like he's going to be hurting for money, that's for sure. Uh, let's talk about some of the other principles here, and and as we've been introduced to them, we've mentioned Dumbledore. I love Richard Harris. I've been a fan of Richard Harris since I was a kid, and I saw The uh, the Man Called Horse movies and some of the other westerns he was in, but it, it, everything else he's er, he ever did, too, I, I saw a lot of him. He was just one of those character actors that if you needed the – standard European, British-slash-Irishman. You know, he was your guy to throw in the film. And he always brings so much depth to a role. And he was quite elderly at this point, and tells the story that he only took it because his granddaughter threatened to not talk to him anymore if he turned it down, which I do think is cute, and, and it's kind of funny. But I liked him immediately as as Dumbledore, and and his whole presence of this all-powerful, all-knowing wizard who's ahead of the school, but he's also very genuine and very gentle, and he's he's like an old school teacher or old school principal that he may have a lot of knowledge and experience, but he's still very good with the kids.
2: I agree. And then we were talking about Harry Potter, how Daniel Radcliffe kind of embodies that character because he looks like it. I think Richard Harris looks like Dumbledore. In the books I've read, when they describe Dumbledore, I automatically picture Richard Harris. Yeah. And I think, I think they did a good job of casting with that. And I think he embodies the character. And like you say, he is like one of these old principals who is older and is wise, but is good with the kids. He's, he's not um the Jeremy Piven character in old
0: school. <laughs> no, no, he is definitely not. But
2: those rascally kids.
0: <laughs> yeah. A he
2: is. And they're, their yeah. strange new fab magic.
0: Yeah, he is he is not he's not that way and he's not um he's not any of those evil teacher heads that, that could be in this kind of film that we've seen he's not the he's also not the Disney John Hughes bad principal person, you know, that yeah. always seems to the authority figure that's in the way. You mentioned um uh, Professor McGonagall, played by Maggie Smith. Now a lot of people will know Maggie Smith mostly for her roles as the um the chief nun in the sister act movies with Whoopi goldberg she's been in a lot of other things too but she's another one that you just see her and you automatically accept that that's who she is you know she can she's this this elderly witch who's incredibly smart and you don't ever want to cross but is also your best friend if you need it so she's the strict teacher but the one that if you get on her good side you're going to be rewarded for it and she's had a a long career, too. She's been in film since the late 50s, so she was a part of the Carol De Burnett show back when it was on. I mean, she's been around a long time, but, again, is is one of those people that I think you can just accept in the role when you see her, and I liked her in this film.
2: Well, also on Maggie Smith, one of the... I do remember her for from the Sister Act movies, but I agree with you, that's more of like a character yeah. role, but one role that I've seen her in that was kind of right after this movie was the divine secrets of the ya-ya sisterhood. (laughs) Yes. She played this old Southern, she had a Southern accent and um, she played this woman. She's like, she's like, it's smoking her whole life. It carries this oxygen tank around. And it's so sad. I know people like that, but she's been carrying. And I just, those are two completely opposite ends of the spectrum between professor McGonagall, who is, wise and stern and you know like you say she's smart and she's stern but she's also fair and then you've got this um caro from the divine secrets of the yaya sisterhood who's carrying around her oxygen tank wearing this loud shirt and is this old crazy kind of southern lady so i think she's very she's very versatile and like you said she's had a long career and i think she fits this role very good as well
0: and before we get back to the kids, we gotta mention Hagrid, Robbie Coltrane. He's mm-hmm. this, this half giant groundskeeper, sort of jack of all trades at Hogwarts. He's the, our guide into the wizarding world as a character, and and for Harry and everybody. And I I love Robbie Coltrane. I think he's funny in everything he's been in. He's been in James Bond movies. He's been in television. He's done all oh, kinds yeah, of stuff. Oh yeah, he was
2: that Russian guy. in
0: Golden Yeah, Eye. he was the Russian guy in Golden Eye. He's he is so good at playing kind of the euro trash um character but in this one in this one though he's like the friendly coach if you're going to use the school analogy with all these people and and he'll say too much and get himself in a little bit of trouble and and give the kids an edge but that's what he's there for and you like him in this movie because he's immediately likable but he's also someone that you can tell that the non-magic world fears because they cower at him when he bows up to him and he's coming to get Harry and take him to Hogwarts at the beginning.
2: He's kind of, magical-wise, he's kind of between a wizard and a muggle. He's a squib. He knows about the magic magical wor- world, but he's not allowed to practice magic. He's in the scene where um, Harry's aunt and uncle's trying to get away from the the owls and the post that keeps sending the hogwarts letters to harry and they're on like this eyeless rocky island in this tower and um haggard comes and gets harry and he comes and barges in on harry's birthday in order to take him to hogwarts and stuff in that scene um he'll he has this umbrella and he'll say um don't tell him." I did this because I'm not supposed to do magic outside of Hogwarts. So I think it's good that he's kind of the mentor, kind of the guide into the wizarding world, because in the whole scheme of things, he's kind of that middle person between the muggle world and the wizarding world. He doesn't have all the magic and the powers that a, a true wizard would have. But, he um, isn't a muggle either. He's been accepted into this world and he knows about it.
0: Well, yeah, and he's like I said, he's a likable character. Everybody, you like him from the time you get him. We got to talk about the other two principal kids here in this, and uh, Ron Weasley and Hermione Granger. Ron Weasley's played by Rupert Grant, who's this sort of redheaded, you know, kid, and he's—you can tell he's. I, I mean, I'm sitting there watching him, and I'm going, "It's the Parkridge family reunion for me here," because he looks so much like Danny Bonaduce, and and he has no connection to him at all. And I certainly hope his life does not turn out that way. But uh, he, I mean, he, I'm just sitting there watching him, going, "This is that that." You know, There's always that one kid, you know, in the '80s films. There was always that one kid that had the mullet, you know, the ginger with the <laughs> mullet. And and the, you know, you just know those kids, right? Well, he's that guy, and, but you like him so much because he's so. You just you want to root for Ron, but you can tell he's just not quite there. And he comes from a family of people that they're magical, but they're they're kind of like the sea level magicians. You know, they're just good enough to be magical, but they're not like great or known for it. But there's so many of them, people know who they are.
2: To me, it's like middle class magical. You know, like they're this family with this this ton of they're magical. if that they live in a shoe or something.
0: Well, you, you know food. what? You know what I was thinking of immediately? And we'll, we'll harken back to a series you and I did. I was sitting there going like, this is one of Danny's younger brothers from Caddy Chef. Yeah, this is the Catholic family in the magical world.
2: Cause they are, they are, they're like that, that Catholic family with like 10 kids. And you hear, and you see she takes them to school and she's got, she's got three already in school. And of course one of them is a set of twins. Yeah, and yeah. then Ron's starting school she's got another one at home because she's holding her daughter's hand and then later in the movie Ron says he's got an older brother who's studying at Dragons <laughs> and, in <laughs>
0: Romania who's already been through holidays. I guess that would be Danny so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so
2: and in the book there's actually oh, I don't know if they mentioned it in any of the movies but in the book he's got two brothers out of Hogwarts and one I think works at the bank one works at the bank with the goblins, one studies dragons, then he's got the three we see the twins and Percy and Ron, and then Jenny, his sister comes yeah. in later in the movie. Who,
0: who isn't in school yet? We should mention
2: so. yeah uh, yeah, she's not in school. she's got one at home. One just starting, three already there, and two that have already left and graduated from Hogwarts. So, you know, it's like the typical, the stereotypical Irish Catholic family or something. And they all have red hair.
1: Yes,
0: of course. I mean, yeah. and I think that's played that way for a reason because we, we know it too. You and I immediately thought Caddyshack, you know, mm-hmm. for that. But we all have like. If you just say that as a character type, then you get everything you need to know as far as backstory goes with those people. So you can follow into what that character is going to be like. And yeah. Ron plays the – and if if you follow the lineage right, and I think I've got it, he's either the middle kid or he's one of the younger kids. But he plays that the the role of I've got people to live up to. And it, some of them are here. Some of them are gone. And he even talks about his older brother a lot. So you can tell he looks up to him and it, that's almost his father figure, even more so than his dad is right now, because he's, you know, there's some distance in their age, but there's close enough that they can still be close. And that is kind of a neat thing as far as acting, because I, I like the kid. I like Rupert Grant. He just seemed kind of cute and fun.
2: Well, as I was watching this, I noticed, and I had read something after the second movie, how his, Facial expressions are just priceless and he had really worked on them and perfected them and they were worth going to see the second movie for. He, his, I noticed he, he has a talent for doing these spot on facial expressions in a thing. Like, and he, and the way he delivers his lies, like at one point he says Hermione's mental. She, I think in the sorting hat when she's like all nervous and she's like, calm down calm down you know she's telling herself to calm down and you know putting the hands out and you could see her like having this conversation in her head and he and ron kind of turns to harry and he's like she's mental that one is she's <laughs> totally like yeah. he has a knack for delivering these one liners yeah and stuff and i think hermione says something later on in the movie she's like I'm going to bed before we either wind up dead or worse, expelled. And Ron just looks at her like she's got to get her priorities
0: straight. (laughs) Yeah.
2: And you know he has a knack for these facial expressions and these one-liners, and it's exactly what this role needs.
0: Oh yeah, he's he's hilarious. That's exactly what he's supposed to be is the comic relief to everything that's very serious going on with. Uh, with Harry Potter. We gotta talk about Emma Watson as Hermione Granger now. The, the intelligent witch who's born to non magical parents. They'll deal with that in, in coming times. They don't really talk about it here, but she's really smart and really the overachiever. And I said a few minutes ago, Anna, that there was one of these people that the performance just wasn't always there for me. And I'm going to say it, it's hers. There's times when I feel like she's overacting the seriousness and she's so into it. And when they give Ron the comic part to go behind it, it works. But other times it just feels like they probably had trouble getting something out of her. It felt like to me, she's not a bad character, not unlikable. But of the three of them, she's the one that that just feels like she's forcing it more than anybody else.
2: Well, okay. On that note, I will agree with you after re-watching this, she is annoying. She's the most annoying little know-it-all, and I just, anyway, Um, <laughs> tangent, but she's She's so annoying and the way she delivers her lines is annoying. And granted, in this movie, she's what, 10, 11, 12 years old. And this is probably her first big thing. So, you know, a couple of kids slack. But anyway, she's just so, un- she's so annoying. There's no other way to describe her, but annoying. And it gets on my last nerve. And, it, and I did notice from watching this movie as they go on, she, softens she's probably she softens but also from being a big fan of the books she's she's supposed to be annoying maybe yeah. not as annoying as Emma Watson plays her but she's
0: supposed to be well she is a little bit annoying but 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 they do give her a big turn in the film. There's a part of the film where she kind of gets her feelings hurt because Ron and several of them are making fun of her after a class and she hears them and runs off. And th- this is on Halloween, I think. And they're all sitting around eating dinner and th- the people are talking about she's been in the bathroom crying all night, you know, and they have to evacuate the school because a troll has been let loose. We find out later that Quirrell is the one that's done this because he's trying to kill Harry and they, those two, of course, go to tell her, you know, hey, you need to get out of school. And they get into, you know, a big thing with the troll, wind up defeating it. But she's there and sort of takes the fall for all of it, for all of them. And that gives her a real heroic quality that she realizes that I am a bit of a know-it-all. So maybe I need to back off a bit. And that endears her to Ron and Harry in a real special way. I mean, you can tell why they would be friends. I just would say that of the three kid actors, that was the one that I just didn't. And I don't really want to see a lot with her because, like I say, she did get on my nerves a little bit. But she's not a bad actress. And having read the book now too, I'll I'll say she's pretty annoying in the book. So <laughs> yeah, they, they make her to be that way, and she plays it that way. It's hard to get a ten year old to be self confident, a ten year old girl. So I mean, she she plays that pretty well. So I'll give her credit for that. But I just wasn't in love with the performance. It wasn't as interesting as the other two guys.
2: I agree, and I have to say, it. I mean, I guess in the grand scheme of things. This is their first movie, so first you know big blockbuster starring role movie. so all of this probably is kind of their worst performance, but i I can really see her owning the character and softening as the movies go on yeah so we'll we'll see that, so I really see it. She does a good job because she's really too cute to play Hermione. I mean now, in all my my entertainment blogs and news shows and stuff i watch she is coming out to be a little fashionista big time at premieres and parties and stuff like that and she the older she gets it's just like she's just too she does a good job because she's believable as hermione but she's too um in real life she's just really too pretty to play that role sometimes so they really do a good job of kind of dressing her down and making her hair frizzy and stuff. And especially in this first movie, this is the only movie where her hair is kind of like it's described in the book. Like it's supposed to be real frizzy and unruly and she's supposed to be really nerdy. And I think that the hair and makeup really accomplished that in this one.
0: It's the same hairstyle they tried to use on Anne Hathaway in the first princess diaries movie to make her look less cute than than she, you know, when they frizzed her hair out and then when they finally straighten her hair, you're like, yeah, okay. <laughs> that's that's what she's supposed to look like. Yeah, they had to uncute her a little bit, but she is a cute kid, and it works. The only other like actor I really want to talk about as far as character, there are a billion characters in this film, but I want to talk about Alan Rickman as Snape because Alan Rickman to me will always be the the bad guy from the first Die Hard movie, even though he's been in a lot of other things that I have liked and have liked him, and I almost always go back to that role because there's a part of that movie where he's sitting there with Bruce Willis and he does an American accent, and then he flips it back to the European accent that's his natural speaking voice. And he's got such a presence with his voice, and he can switch a look on his face and give you, am I being sinister, am I being calculating, or am I being protecting? He can do all of that stuff. He did that in Die Hard. He does that in this movie, too, because you're led to believe, if you don't know anything about this going into it, that Snape is a bad guy because he comes from the the dark house, Slytherin, and he's always kind of, you know, being tough on Harry, and he's, he's mysterious, and Harry even pigs he as, this is the guy that's trying to get me killed. And as it turns out, he's one of the ones who's trying to protect him most out of out of everyone there and i liked alan rickman in this i thought he really really brought the a-game as far as acting goes
2: actually my mom drugged me to see sense and sensibility yeah which is a good thing that i didn't have to read the book and i did a book report for one of my high school english classes from that movie (laughs) but anyway i remember him from that one of these like jane austen books and i i remember him from that and so in my mind, he kind of fits in well with this. And then my and I know how I have mentioned in another podcast, but Family Guy does this bit with Alan Rickman's voice machine. And it's yeah. like, hello, this is Alan Rickman. Yeah, it's, it's, it's this...
0: this- it's this sort of dark, drawl, British <laughs> accent? Yeah, and he's he's got that down. I mean, he's he does have a very distinct voice. That's what I was saying earlier, and and or I was trying to say earlier, and you brought it out there. He's got a real distinct voice. But he's got a real neat look too. I mean, he mm-hmm. looks like Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails, and and that wasn't exactly what I thought of when I finally read the book. I was like, that's they kind of took a different look at Snape, but I guess they got it right. It's open interpretation. I mean, it and it works fine. He's he's really interesting when you watch him
2: and i was also wanted to say as you said before the harry thinks he's out to get him and harry thinks he's evil and stuff and at the there's a wonderful payoff at the end and um that explains all this and it's like an aha moment but that's a running theme throughout the series and we'll see it in other
0: Maybe. Yeah, it is. It, it really is. And they play with it for the, from the whole, the whole start. And I guess, you know, if we're going to keep up our school analogy here, Snape is that really mean teacher that you can never please, who's yes. got it in for you from the start. He's the principal in the Ferris Bueller, uh, movie. <laughs> you know, he's, he's Ed Rooney. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's that character, um, but more sinister. And it, or at least you think he is sinister. And uh, we got to talk about Quidditch for a minute. I, I you know when this movie was in pre-production when it was coming out I remember people talking about I don't know how they're going to do this game that they've got in Harry Potter that's kind of like soccer on broomsticks for wizards and I
2: think it's it, more like rugby. Or
0: rugby, too. And yeah, and I said with a little bit of rugby. I mean, I heard it described a lot of different ways. And they're like, I have no idea how they're going to do it. And I even saw an interview with the with the author who said, I have no idea how they're going to make Quidditch come to life. And this was 2001. So it's it's past. We've, we've had The Phantom Menace now. So we've had all the big digital breakthrough that that film was as far as effects go. And we've had Titanic. We've had all that kind of stuff that was one of the neatest things to ever see. Because when I finally rented this movie and watched it, they were talking about it. And I said, let's see what they do with this. And when I watched that Quidditch match, even watching it this time, I always am enthralled in how much you can get into it and you don't realize you're watching something that was done on wires and blue screens it i mean it's all the actors give great performances it's i don't even know how to describe the game it's just it's it's frenetic (laughs) but but it's it's such a neat scene and they uh, they really pay it off well as far as they set up quidditch and how hard flying is and all that and then they they make Harry out to be this lineage of great Quidditch players. And then he goes out there and really performs. He wasn't winning the game for him, which was huge. And it was such a neat five, seven minute scene. It But it, 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 it goes by so fast. You're like, Oh, I want to see more Quidditch. You know, it it seemed like a, a really fun thing. And I was impressed the way they, they brought it out of I it. Mean, that was great direction right there and great art direction.
2: Well, I'm going to disagree with you on a couple of levels. Um, first off, okay let me say I agree and disagree I think looking back in 2001 they did an awesome job but looking back from 2010 to that almost 10 years later I just I I just can can tell I'm just looking at it I'm like that is so a blue screen that is so not hairy that a CGI something. There's one where the broomstick like takes him, and I think he's spinning around or something and it so does not it so looks like a CGI person and not him. Kinda like kinda like you could kinda see in the first Spider Man when Toby Maguire's yeah. um learning his powers. I you kinda know that it's CGI. I think that since then the break that if they did that now, I think they've even done it in some of the recent movies it looks so much different, so much more realistic. Um, I like how, how, um, the whole mm-hmm. setup I do like how they did the field, they did, um, they set that up good, and I think they set it up like it's in the book. And I loved in this movie, and I, I think when they got different directors, they don't necessarily do it in subsequent movies, but I love the little kid announcing. I think yeah. it's, um, or something I can't remember
0: yeah they, they throw that kid in there they, they did change one major thing and I did read this is that in the book it's just like a it's like a regular stadium like a regular soccer stadium would be in Europe in, uh-huh. in the film they did make it into these big towers and this sprawling field and this big, they made it bigger than it was and described in the book and I remember that when I read the book of thinking oh this is described as a little smaller you know playing surface than what you see in the film but the action works out the same.
2: Right. And I think in the film like you would kind of have to make it bigger to make it work. What I think you would have to to make the action sequences work, I think you would have to make it bigger. And I love the kids and their little um scarves, the school colors, and they got their flags. I think that's adorable. And then the professors are yeah. li- are like in their tower, or like almost like their boxes.
0: Yeah, the, every every house has their box, and they've got yeah. their professors. Yeah, it, and that's and that's one of the big plot things is, and you talked about Snape is set up as the bad guy. Uh-huh. Harry's having trouble during the match, and. It, they see Snape and he's, he's mouthing something, you know, kind of silently to himself. And Ron and Hermione decide he's throwing a spell on Harry. Go stop him. And Hermione lights his cape on fire underneath uh-huh. the, the stands to get his attention. And that distracts the whole thing. Harry wasn't winning based on that. But that, that's part of that setup is you think Snape's trying to kill Harry during the Quidditch match.
2: Right, and it goes with that theme that they keep misunderstanding yeah. Snake. Yeah. But I thought I thought the special effects were okay. They were probably really good for 2001. Oh. Um, I thought Harry, and this is the only, well, one of the, there's only two things I really have a problem with Daniel Radcliffe's performance, and it might not necessarily be him. It might be the the technology and the special effects along with the direction and stuff is that you kind of see him overacting in this scene where it's like, like the, he's kind of like watching the action go on and he's seeing his teammates fall off their brooms one by one. And it's just like, it's like, Oh man. And like one scene, he almost to me looks like you going to cry. And it's, and to me, I just had so many problems with that scene. One is I don't think that's what, Harry would have done it eventually. He's sitting there just watching them drop one by one. And it's like, oh, man, and he's all upsetting. And then another th- problem I had with it, he's a first year. This is his first Quidditch match. I, I didn't play sports in high school, but I do like sports. And I might be cynical about this. But I'm like, as a little, you know, basically the equivalent of a sixth or seventh grader, you're sitting out there and you're like, Oh man, like you're about ready to cry over this match when it's your first match and you really don't have a good grasp of the repercussions and the...
0: Yeah of this i'm like okay that's a little stupid well it was a little it is a little uh, disney-esque if i may say that they throw in the new player and he's so naturally gifted at it that he just figures out how to how to win in, in uh-huh. spite of the odds i it it was a little but that's how it plays out in the story And and for a story's point i think what they're trying to say is that this guy has no idea how special he really is. So if if, you, if we're to agree that this film is all from Harry's perspective, essentially, then all of the moments with him are what he would see in himself and that he would be really not very confident about this. He has no idea how to catch the snitch. He doesn't know what any of this is about. He's barely figured out how to fly his broom at this point. And plus they give him like the upgraded model broom, which I did think was cute. And he has no idea what he's doing, you know, but he somehow or another, you know, Bud air bud wins the world series, you know, I mean, that's, that's sort of how it worked out. And I could take it as again, if this guy has no idea how special he really is. And it's these little moments, these things that happen that clue him into the fact that not only do I have this lineage, but it's living on in me. And if I will, work at it the way I'm supposed to, then I can be even beyond what everybody expects. You know, he's the rock star of Hogwarts before he ever even gets there. And then he does things to live up to it. So I, I kind of liked it as a character thing. It is a little silly that they won based on that, but Again, it worked for me as far as effects go. And I, I say the effects hold up a little bit better than maybe, maybe you're giving it credit for. I know you're, you're a bigger effects film fan than I am, though. You see a lot more of them. So your eye for it is probably much sharper than mine. But for me, it was okay. It didn't take me out of the film. I wasn't completely aware the whole time that I'm watching something that's unreal, except for the fact that it's a game I don't even know what the rules are. And, and, and that's, you know, you're not given much, but you don't have to know it. I think that's the beautiful thing, is they have the one kid that sort of explains it in brief to him and that's all you really need to know. And and the one thing that is important to that is if you catch this, we win the game. Well that's all you need to know is that okay, Harry's gonna go catch that now. At some point he is going to catch up to that little golden snitch and that's gonna be it. And he ultimately swallows it. I think that's how he winds up catching well, it because he falls off his room. At the
2: very end, I thought it was good character development because I think looking back that that's something Harry would do in that situation. Like he's like you said, he's just learned to fly on this broomstick still kind of unsure what he does is he stands up on the broomstick, almost like it's a tight rope yeah. and reaches out to grab it. And that's how he, ca- that's how he catches it. He kind of winds up getting wobbly. And I think accidentally swallowing it is how he catches it. But, but that I think is a good character building block.
0: Oh yeah, and it, and it it is a fun fun part of the thing. And Quidditch is such a big part of that world that again it 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 puts us in that world without asking us to accept too much of it. If that makes sense, it's it's uh, you know it's it is there were that, that the magicians would have their own game that they played is. That that was something only they could do. Is it's just more neat to separate them from the real world if if it is, and it's kind of neat. And it's I, yeah. Well, we can talk about the, the theme thing at the end. I, I, I do want we gotta we gotta talk a little bit about the the big the, the MacGuffin of the whole thing here is this Philosopher's Stone. This idea of this this stone that can grant its uh, holder immortality, and and that Snape would be after this to get it to bring Voldemort back to life to kill him. And that's the rumor going around is that he who shall not be named, which of course is Voldemort is trying to reform himself and reform his evil army. And if he ever got back into corporeal form, that would be really bad for Harry and for everybody involved at Hogwarts. And this, this evil wizard, this evil thing that doesn't really have form and no one can see or no one has seen and live to tell about it is the big, Flux of of the B plot of this and and this stone that allegedly Snape is trying to get after. Uh, well How was that for you? I mean, did you like it? Because I said in the beginning that I thought it worked as well as the character stuff. Did mm-hmm. Did you like the whole Philosopher's Stone, Sorcerer's Stone part of this?
2: Yeah, I did. And another thing, as you were saying in the beginning, I just thought of is that and we established this book has a lot of the history and backstory and explaining the wizarding world to us. And as the movies and the books move on, whereas, say, this one, 90% is backstory, history, character development. 10% is an uh, actual plot, like the Sorcerer's Philosopher's Stone. In each movie, the percentage gets higher and higher and higher. So I think it worked for me, and I thought it was a good, um I use this term a lot, stepping stone into the other other, that it's not that that we've established that Voldemort is alive that he does kind of have it out for Harry that plot does a good job of establishing it that like okay this battle is won but the war is not over
0: right and and it, it is it is just the beginning of things because right. you see Voldemort vanquished but then he you know his spirit flies off and knocks Harry out before he He leaves the scene and you don't, we don't know, we don't really know much more about him, his motivations or anything other than just the little bits and pieces and if you're going to establish, Brian and I talk about this on The Art of Slang all the time, when they established the big bad of the, the season in the series that we liked how they just doled out little pieces of it in, in a few episodes here and there so you got little morsels to take forward with. Well this is the beginning of that for the Harry Potter series. Voldemort is the big bad of all Harry Potter and in, in addition to all the other things that he'll have to face and all the other trials that he'll go through. That's the big evil thing that's hanging over him. It's his legacy. It's part of his history. It's its everything, right? And we don't know much more about him other than just the uh, Voldemort, other than just the few things we're told and that we see in this. But what we see is incredibly frightening and is really good. And I, I liked it. I, it gave me a lot to look forward to. It, again, if you're going to do character development, you've got to have the characters doing something meaningful this was a meaningful side plot as as it were
2: another thing that I think this plot did is for sh- there is foreshadowing that, that that Harry and Voldemort have more in common than you think um, I think there's this does a good job of foreshadowing that their destinies are entwined so to speak and it does a fair it's lit like with just it just, does a very good job. I think, for example, with the wands, and when Harry goes to get yeah. the school supplies, I could think at the end when Baltimore goes through him. I could think in the middle part where his scar starts to hurt and stuff. This does a good job of foreshadowing that that this isn't open, That this isn't over. That there's more to the story than you think, and they're entwined more than you think.
0: Well, you said it. they have a lot more in common than a part because mm-hmm. he, and the wand is a great example. He gets this wand, and, and John Hurt plays in this scene. And if you know John Hurt, folks, you, you know who I'm talking about. He's a great little uh, bit part in this. Harry gets the wand that there's a tail feather of a phoenix I, I, in there, and the he uh, the only gave one other feather, and that feather's in the wand that gave him the scar on his head. So in other words, it's Voldemort's wand. So he's got the brother wand of Voldemort. So that that is and that's, you know, that's a common trope in a lot of literature and in film is that mm-hmm. your big evil thing is something you're much closer to than you realize. And I'll go back to my Star Wars comparison again. Luke didn't find out Darth Vader was his father until you know, he cut his hand off in the second film. Right. Mm-hmm. They had a lot more in common than Luke ever would have thought. Let's talk about the ending here. I really liked the little trials they had to go to. My favorite thing always is that big live chess match. I, that was. Oh awesome. yeah, that's cool. I mean, you know, as far as effects go, that's practical effect, and that looked cool. Ron and Harry are playing a smaller version of that earlier on, and Hermione walks up on them, and one of Ron's characters, you know, cuts off Harry's knight's head or whatever, and she's like, "That's so brutal," and he said, "Well, that's wizard's chess." And then they get there, and it's the live, full size, even bigger than life wizard's chess happening, and these pieces go at war with each other, and they have to duck in and out of them. It was really, really intense.
2: Oh, I, I that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And, and I love also in it how Ron kind of sacrifices himself so Harry can go on. He chooses yep. to be the one who gets sacrificed so Harry can go and take the queen. And um, then they can win the match. They can win the match. And Harry can go on unharmed. But, you know, Ron gets, you know, attacked.
0: Yeah. And, and he survives it, but he essentially will give up his life for his friend Mm -hmm. so that his friend can go forward. And, and, and they've used, each of the kids have used their gift to sort of get Harry forward. Hermione Mm -hmm. knows things. So she uses her knowledge to get him through part of it. And then, uh, Ron uses the fact that he's willing to just put himself out there and just be that, that loyal friend that will help you get through a tough spot to get Harry to the end. And then in the end, the great reveal, when you have the Professor Quirrell, who's supposed to be this sort of sniveling little nervous man, and he turns yeah. out to be really, really evil, you know, which you know,
2: of like a germaphobe.
0: Yeah. Yeah. like he,
2: learn out why he touched Harry in yeah. the scene, but when he first meets Harry, Harry wants to shake his hand. He's like, no, no, no. He just kind of stutters and it's kind of wussy and, mumbles and just kind of his mannerisms is like a germaphobe. And he wears this turban on his head, which really you find out is hiding Voldemort because Voldemort's face is on the back of his head.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and that's, that's the whole thing is that literally he's had other things on his mind, you know, in a very literal way. And he is allowed, uh, Voldemort's allowed himself to basically, or he has convinced this wizard to, you know, be his, parasitic host if you will and, and he is
2: that. i think we do need to mention that he is the defense against the dark arts teacher yeah he's the one t- he's the one teaching you know he's how, the one teaching that
0: yeah how, how to keep away from the dark arts and he yet yeah. is a practitioner of them so and you would get the idea that that would be something snape would do and that he, he,
2: but they do mention that early on yeah
0: where
2: i think percy or someone says that Snape's been fancying Quirrell's job for years. And then also it's a running thing throughout the book like that every year they get a new for whatever reason they get a new defense
0: against the yeah they can't, they can't hold on to one because apparently yeah that's,
2: they can't they that have a lot of high turnover
0: yeah there's a lot so, you can't keep a good so, math teacher i guess i don't i don't know what the you know what dark arts would be in the real school world but yeah or chemistry i guess i don't know but yeah no that would be potion but uh but yeah i mean yeah it's it, they do get a new one.
2: harry comes the realization that it's not snake and you know All through the movie, there have been these little scenes where Snape has been led to believe to be the bad guy. And there's even a part where Harry's in his invisibility cloak and he sees Snape confronting Quirrell and saying, you're either on my, you need to hurry up and pick a side. And of course, that's all he says. So Harry just assumes that he's trying to pull Quirrell over to the dark arts when at this point, Quirrell reveals that he's saying, Well, you need, you need to pick a, you need to get out of the dark art side and pick my side because you don't want me as your enemy because if you do something bad i'm going to come after you
0: right and and that is a neat twist is that Mm -hmm. we find out in the end snape was one of the ones protecting harry and that little spell he was doing at the quidditch match quirl tells him this is oh it was working fine until snape started protecting you and then all of a sudden i had to break eye contact with you because they set that up to do a potion do a spell you got to keep eye contact with people i had to break eye contact with you because you said is uh or somebody set his cloak on fire you know Mm -hmm. and and so you realize that they were trying that someone was trying to kill him there snape was aware of it and was protecting him which is a real neat twist well it's it's one of those big reveals and and it's one of the best reveals in the end and that last fight that idea that harry's touch burns him to death and then dumbledore explains it to him is and like we said in the plot summary is that because your mother died protecting you that's the ultimate gift of love and the fact that you went in there with your two friends who love you and protected you and got you to that point you were surrounded by that type of protection and so when you you know put love against perfect evil that love will always win and that's that's a very, you know, cute and Disney-esque kind of thing to throw in there. But it's done. It, it's a good way to resolve that because they had to give something like, why did his touch just burn this guy? And that's why. And, it, and it's really smart. And, and I love the fact that that was the I guess was the the big uh, that was the special tool that got him to the next level and, and allowed him to defeat the uh, Professor Quirrell. But Voldemort's not dead. He's still out there, and so they leave that hanging too. I like the ending too, where they everybody's going home for the summer, and Harry's like, "Yeah, I really don't want to leave because I gotta live under the stairs again." You know, I felt for the kid because I'm like, "Does he really even have a place to go at this point?" I guess he does, but over a year, maybe they've forgiven him. But wow, that's that's a pretty pretty steep thing. It's, and I I never went to boarding school or whatever, but if if you read this the way you know J.K. Rowling set it up, it's this idea of you know if the perfect fantasy for kids that went to English boarding school was when they left there, that was home to them that having to go back to where they were from was so foreign to them. They just, you know, it was, it was a real, he could tell there was a twinge of sadness to him when he was leaving, but he was, but it would be short and he would be back in the, in the fall.
2: Well, I can see his, I can see his point because the, the Privet drive for Privet drive is not, um, is not his home, his home, is in the wizarding world. Both his parents were wizards. Both his parents went to Hogwarts, and when you see the upbringing, and you'll see this later on more so of Ron, who's this wizarding, who's this wizarding family, and how he was brought up, and Harry, and Hermione was brought up. I think they both represent the kind of microcosm. I might be using the wrong word, but the microcosm that uh, makes up Hogwarts is you have these quote-unquote purebred family you have these muggles like Hermione both her parents were muggles and then you have like Harry who's and they kind of even allude to it and one of the when they're in the great hall I think at one day after they've been sorted or when school first starts or something and one of them says my dad's a muggle my mom's a witch man he was really he was really mad when he found out and stuff like that and I think that kind of makes it up and you'll see that conflict later and I notice as I'm saying all this that I've said this over and over if this is a stepping stone you'll see this later this is a theme throughout that's what that's what this movie does it carries these themes forward all the stuff you see in this movie you're gonna see later on eventually some of the stuff will fade but everything you see you're going to see later on in the books or the films everything's going to come full circle in
0: the end. And that's and that's a great point, and it's a great part to wrap up our discussion on Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. So well, Anna, we're at the part of the podcast where we give our ratings for this movie, and we've changed our rating system here a bit on Continuous Play. We now have a popcorn rating system. The bigger the bag of the popcorn, the more we recommend the movie. So, Anna, what's your popcorn rating for Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone?
2: I would rate it a large popcorn with extra butter, because it's it's not the best harry potter movie of the bunch but it's you absolutely positively have to see it to start off and all in all standing on its own it's a good movie so i give it a large with extra butter because because you have to see it to get the whole harry potter franchise and like i said it is a good movie
0: I'll agree with you. This is a large popcorn for me, too, as far as ratings go. It's a really good movie. There's a ton of stuff here. It's it For a character development movie, which is really what this thing is, and a setup movie, it's got a really good B-plot, and the setup is all very interesting. It's well-directed. It's mostly well-acted. I mean, we've nitpicked a few things here and there, but for the most part, this is a really solid film. So especially if you're a fan of the series, you're going to love this. But if you're coming to Harry Potter kind of new and and looking to see, you know, which ones are more recommended than others, I guess this is a great start to a series. I'll say that. And so this is a large popcorn for me as well. And I started this discussion, though, saying, is this a kid's movie? So let me ask you now, is this a kid's movie?
2: Oh, yes. I totally think this is a a kid's movie. I'm not saying adults won't enjoy it but it's geared for kids it's toward kids and I think that's how it should be because at this point in time in the story in the book they are kids they're like I said they're these sixth seventh graders they you know they're just trying to make their way through a new school and fit in and and fit in and stuff so I and I, I think that that in that respect, it is a kid movie. And like I have said before, as the series goes on, it becomes less and less a kid movie. And I think the books kind of do the same thing. One thing I really impressed J.K. Rowling did is she grew with her audience. The kids started reading this at 12, 11 years old. You know, it doesn't, it takes more than three or four months to write a book and get it published and stuff. And she even had a, between the fourth and fifth, she had a baby, so it took like three or four years to get it out, and all the movies had caught caught up by the time she released the fifth book. So, you know, it takes a long time to write a book, especially this long of a series. So she, she, her books grew with her audience, and so I think the book was a kid's book at this point in time. I think the movie is a kid's movie at this point in time, not to say the last book is a kid's movie, cause a kid's book, because it certainly is not, and I don't think the last movie is going to be a kid's movie at all. So, at this point in time, I completely think it's a kid's movie, and Chris Columbus directed this, and, like you said, kind of Dumbledore has that way with kids.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I think as a director, Chris Columbus kind of has a way with kids, like Home Alone and stuff, and I really got a Home Alone vibe from this movie, like the score and stuff for some reason. I don't know if it's because it was kind of in the fall, a lot of it took place in the fall and kind of Christmas time, but I totally got a home alone vibe from this movie. It, it
0: does have that that kids away from the parents, you know, feel to it, and that's part of the whole boarding school experience and everything in it. I'll, I'll agree with you. This is a kids movie, but I'll say this: it's a bold kids movie because there's a lot of you know serious thematic elements in this. There's some serious drama. There's there's even some you know mild language. There's a lot of violence in this, so it's a bold kids movie if it's a kids movie. But I'll agree with you: the subject material grows with this series as these kids grow and as we go forward and that's what you're supposed to do in in this Uh, if you're going to do a show or a a film series where you start at a certain age and you're going to progress it then everybody's got to progress as the actors do and as the material does so i'll agree with you i think it is a kids movie and it's a darn good one at that folks we're just getting started here in the harry potter series we're glad you've joined us you can check back at our website continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies for more information about the release, uh, new releases in this series and also check out our archives of our other film series and you can send us email if you want to argue any of these points with Anna and I or just uh, add in your two cents to do that at mailbag at continuousplaypodcast.com so Anna we are one chapter down in the Harry Potter series next time we return it's time to open up Pandora's box the Chamber of Secrets we'll see you next time for Anna I'm Jay thanks for listening to Continuous Play
1: Thank you for joining us in this chapter of Continuous Play's Harry Potter series retrospective. We will be reviewing each of the Harry Potter films this fall up until the release of the first part of the series finale, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Check out our website, www.continuousplaypodcast.com, each week for a new release in the series, and email feedback to us at mailbag at